Um, our fourth Friday is the 28th. So fourth Fridays around here, we call them fourth Fridays for five bucks. And they're at five o'clock. We're doing gross Olympics. Um, and so if you are going into sixth grade or graduating this year, you still get to do summertime stuff. So uh, if you, that'll be at five o'clock on the 28th. If you are in that age range and want to come just eat gross stuff or watch people eat gross stuff. Uh, I, I sometimes, Gibbons, is Gibbons, Gibbons, when you, you minored in youth ministry or majored in youth ministry? Did they, did they teach you how to eat gross stuff? Did they, is there like a test on what is considered gross or how does that all, I mean, because I don't. Um, there, it, there is actually a class on events and that was one of the topics. Yeah, because I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been a part of uh, a youth ministry where we didn't try to eat gross stuff or make someone eat gross stuff. Um, so I, I just, I just wondered if that was the case and apparently it is. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today. We thank you that um, even in the midst of our temporary, our construction, our, our stuff that's going on, maybe the building's a little hotter than we'd like it to be. Maybe it's just not what we want right now, Lord. I just, I'm so glad that you remind us that you are a God that sees and a God that intervenes. And as we spend some time in this idea of you stepping into the world, of you coming into us to meet us where we are, to provide for, to, to bless us, to watch us grow. We just, we thank you for what you've blessed us with. Help us to be grateful and have gratitude toward where we are now with hope for where we will be soon. In Jesus' name, amen. With that, I think I should probably announce that we, we are on the agenda for the 31st of the Planning Commission of July. Um, <laughs> But that, that's just the next one. So, but, but that is, and so that'll be, if we find that out, it's going to be a breeze. Because I think I announced a couple weeks ago that we did find out we don't need sprinklers and we don't need a firewall. So everything is just going to fly when we start, when we start going. So we should be in there um, as soon as Ben's ready. Um, huh. This morning, we, we're, so we're starting this new series. And, and we're calling it Intervention or Divine Intervention, the way that God intervenes in our lives. And what happens when God doesn't intervene in our lives, the way that we think God ought to intervene in our lives, or when it just seems like he just straight doesn't intervene in our lives? Because this is, the, the topic of this thing is, is very, very widespread, right? Maybe you've said it before when you pull into Walmart and you're like, praise God, he gave me a front parking spot. Yeah, when it's hot. Oh, no, that, and then you say, praise God, there's a spot under the tree, yeah. the tree in the Walmart parking lot, the two shady spots. So is that, is that the divine intervention that we pray for? That we just cannot wait for God to give us a good parking spot. Meanwhile, there are people all over the world that are like, are we going to eat today? But here we're like, man, God is so good. So good. I got the front parking spot, the closest one to the handicap. So good. And this is, a bit, I mean, does intervention, is it, is it weighted? Is there a scale of divine intervention? Can God intervene in little things and massive things? Can God choose not to intervene? Or does God not intervene for a reason? Look, these are, these are big things. And I, I'm going to promise you right now, there'll be some weeks in this series that I will not tie this up with a nice little bow and you'll go home feeling great. There, there will be times in this series where you're going to go home going, I never thought about that. Where is God in that? And, and I, I think this is a good place. We've said this before, that the absence of faith is not doubt. 
the absence of faith is being convinced of something. Right? You don't need faith if you're convinced of it. The absence of faith is not doubt. Doubt is something that actually solidifies faith if you do it in the right place and you do it in the right way and you wrestle with things and you start going, God, your word says this, so I know it's got to be true, but I don't see it right now. And you live there. There's an entire section of the book of Psalms called the Lament Psalms. And the whole purpose of those Psalms is people crying out to God saying, where are you? Where have you gone? Why don't you care? And, they, they, and look, it's in Scripture. There's an entire book called Lamentations. Lamentations is about lamenting, about going, God, where have you been? Where are you? Why aren't you here? And so Scripture is filled with people crying out, saying, I don't understand. You said this, but I'm living this, and it doesn't make any sense. And so some weeks you'll leave here going, God really does intervene. And some weeks you may leave here going, man, I don't know. That's, that, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust you to be people that will wrestle. Because the last thing I want to do, I, we had a professor in school. I mean, when you go to a lot of Christian schools, the first couple years you're there, uh, they, they, they do a really good job of breaking down your parents' faith. And so you walk in in your freshman year, usually in part of your sophomore year, is they're challenging the ideas that you grew up with so that you can reconstruct ideas that belong to you. And so a little bit of this, and I, but I'm not that, we had a, we had a philosophy teacher that uh, he's actually not teaching anymore and he's not in ministry at all. And it, the reason why is because his freshman year he did such a good job of deconstructing people's faith that some of the freshmen didn't come back. And it was a real, it was a real problem for him because he felt like and if they had come back for the sophomore year, there would have been the rebuilding. But it's kind of like how the world works now. We're all about deconstructing with no construction plans. So uh, a little bit of this is going to be that, where, I, where I'm, I'm going to want you guys to go home and wrestle. I'm going to want you to have some uncomfortable moments. I'm going to want there to be times that you say, you're right, that's not fair. And I'm not going to say this to you. I, you. You may hear this out of my mouth this series, but probably not. Do I believe that God works for the good of those who love him? Yes, I do. But sometimes that's too easy of an answer when you're wrestling with struggling and, and, and fighting with things. So we're going to take a look at this and we're going to figure this out. Now, I figured that since it's such a heavy topic, we would start out with a really good one, really easy. So we're going to be in 1 Kings. At least I didn't start in Chronicles. But, but in 1 Kings, there's this, there's this story in Scripture in 1 Kings. Uh, chapter 21 is where we're going to be. 1 Kings chapter 21. Um, as I was reading this and preparing this week, in my mind, it's a Marvel movie. Like, I, I'm quite certain that one day, Stan Lee was sitting and reading his Old Testament, and he went, I should make comic books, and this could be the whole thing. Like, I could just base them on this, on, on this passage of Scripture. Now, we're, we're going to get into it. I'm not going to read it all because it's a huge chunk. So, it's all written there on your, on your bulletins. Um, so you can read it all when you, when you get home. I will read part of it. But the, the, this, this idea, first, you have to understand that we have some main characters that are going to be introduced into this story. Just like we do in the beginning of every Marvel movie, right? Think, think of, I'm just going to pick one, because I can, and then I'm going to have Ben come up and summarize all the rest of the Marvel movies. No. <laughs> just kidding. Ben's never seen a Marvel movie, so... <laughs> <laughs> it is. Ben of the third Iron Man. Just kidding. Um, so, 
in Captain America, we have this, this opening scene where we have this scrawny kid and, and, and his buddies, and they're all doing these things, and he really wants to do something. So we're introduced to these main characters. We're introduced to, into a conflict, into what's going on, why they need these characters, what they're going to be doing. And so in the beginning of this one, we're introduced to some characters that we've already met before prior in First Kings. They're, they're pretty famous characters. So it would have been like not the first Iron Man, maybe like Winter Soldier, because you already know them. But that, that was a sequel to uh, American, Captain America. Case. All right. Because I know, spoiler alert. Sorry, Ben. Um, so we're, we're introduced to these characters. The first one is probably one that you've heard of before. Uh, his name is King Ahab. He, did not be a, he was not a whale hunter. Totally different Ahab. King Ahab was married to a woman I'm sure you've heard of. Her name was Jezebel. Now, this is just a, bit of, just a spoiler alert. You know why there's not many girls running around the church named Jezebel? It's one biblical name people tend to stay away from. That and Judas. I don't know why. They're just not very... And so, so when, we, when we were having kids... That's a weird thing. When, when we were talking about names for our kids, we wanted to keep the J thing going, right? We had a girl first. That shot out the window because we weren't naming her Jezebel. <laughs> so then we just went two E's and it was good. It was, two, we have two E kids. Uh, <laughs> sorry, teacher joke. I'm around them too much. <laughs> Golly. Uh, I'm going to reel it back in now. Um, so, so we're introduced to Ahab and Jezebel. These, these characters that have been oppressive, abusing power for several chapters now, and they, they come to this place where it's all going to come to a head. And then we're introduced to another guy. His name is Natham, and he is, he, he's a righteous guy, and he has a vineyard, right? So, so now we have a setting, and then we find out that uh, Ahab wants this vineyard. Now we have a problem, a conflict. Just like in Captain America, it rolls out, World War II is going on, and Hydra is, is exploding everywhere, just like it really happened. Uh, did you know that World War II, the Germans had lasers? In the Marvel Universe, they did. So we, we have this conflict now of there's a vineyard. Ahab wants this vineyard. Nathan says, I can't give you the vineyard because it's my ancestor's vineyard. And there's all kinds of laws in Deuteronomy that you could not give up your ancestor's land because that was the, the land was important. That was the promised land. That was the land. The land was part of who they were. And so all throughout this, through Deuteronomy, there's these laws about not giving. So Nathan says, I can't. God, God says, no, we can't do that. I'm not, I'm not giving you my land. And so I'm just going to read this because you'll think I'm making it up if I don't. I'm going to read it up here because I can't see. The address, it's 1380 East 5th Street. Oh, 1 Kings 21. <laughs> So I'm going to read it from here. There's, there's parts that I'll just have you skip, but because uh, it is long and you don't want to hear me read that much. Is it not showing up? That's all right. I have a Bible too. Now I just got to find First Kings. <laughs> Whoa, that was amazing. All right, so just before Second Kings and after Zero Kings. I know, I opened my Bible right to it. It was God intervening. Now i got to take my glasses off. All right, so this is... The, the, <laughs> there's some really funny stuff. This is the king of a pretty profitable and, and powerful nation. You need to keep that in mind, okay? Ahab is no joke. Like, he's, he's not just like this made-up king, but he he's actually have a, has a nation that's doing pretty well. 
So we have this all the way through, down through uh, verse 3, uh, where Naboth replied and said, The Lord forbid I should give any inheritance to my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth and Jeze- the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. So the king of Israel decided he was going to be four, and throw a temper tantrum. I mean, this is, this is first class. He, he lays down on his bed, turns his back to everyone, and goes, I'm not going to eat. I, I'm mad at you. He said no to me. This is a, like this, is, this, this textbook temper tantrum that the king of Israel is throwing. <laughs> That's why I had to read it, because you all thought I was making a joke. It's really in there. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said, I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in this place. But he said, he said I won't. Then he kicked something. <laughs> Jezebel, his wife, said, oh, This is the best. This is <laughs> his wife, Jezebel, looks at him and goes, is this how you act as a king over Israel? Let me translate that from the, from the Hebrew to English. Pull up your big boy pants. Get out of bed. Knock it off. Right? This is perfect Father's Day message. <laughs> I will give you another vineyard in this place. But he said, no. Jezebel's wife, is this how you act as a king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard for Father's Day. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. Okay, so now we have new characters. She has now sent these letters to these people that are basically a jury or a council. And, and she's, in these letters, she is going to actually say that Naboth it was doing heresy by not agreeing to the king completely within legal rights. There is nothing illegal about this because technically Naboth did say no to the king. So you can, you can strew that as being heresy against the king. And so what Jezebel is doing right here isn't illegal. It's just not the best decision in the world. So she writes these letters and she tells them, now what I want you to do is I want you to throw a big party right after a fast and then I want you to get two people to accuse Naboth of this, Naboth of this thing. So that happens. What happens to Naboth after that? They take him out and they stone him. And during this time, it's an ancestral land, so it's an ancestral punishment. So that just means not Naboth was stoned, but also his kids. So what this does is it's much bigger than just this idea that the one that stood against the king is now dead. You have basically left a family homeless because now, guess what? No one owns the vineyard, so the king can just come in and take it. And the beauty of this, it says that this is just outside the kingdom of Samaria. Well, the castle wasn't in Samaria. So this wasn't even like Ahab's first house. He wanted a vegetable garden at his vacation palace. And so he goes, and now now he owns it. And now Naboth's wife and daughters have nowhere to be. 
They are now widows. They're homeless. There's nothing. So this entire ancestral lineage has been transplanted now because this guy wanted a vegetable garden close to his second palace home. Now, when you read that, it sounds completely absurd because it's completely absurd. But then the other thing in that, too, is if you, if you look at it from, from first reader's perspective, this idea that there was a vineyard there that is now being torn up and planted a vegetable garden, all throughout the, the Israel's, Israel's history with God, God referred to his people as the vineyard. So there's this illusion that is being made here that this is the proper way, and now somebody else is coming in and putting something else in. They're transplanting things in. Now, if you know anything about Elijah and Jezebel, this history, or not Elijah, I'm sorry, Ahab. Oh, man, I gave away a character. Dang it. This is why I don't write. Stan Lee does. Not anymore. Um, they, there's this history that Elijah has showed up several times in Ahab's life and kind of made things tough on him and Jezebel. There's a story just in chapter 17 where Elijah shows up after Jezebel, by the way, has killed all of God's prophets. There's none left. Elijah was hiding in the mountains and crows were feeding him. So he comes back to town and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest. I want you to get all of your prophets of Baal together, which were like 450, and me, just one prophet of Yahweh, we're going to see who can get God to call down fire and burn up this burnt offering. So challenge accepted. They set up the altars, and at this point, Ahab has already set up an altar to Baal in the temple courts. I mean, it's bad. I mean, he's fully surrendered over to Jezebel's God. And so they do this. The, the, the prophets of Baal dance around, they, they fast, they cry, they, they, they cut themselves, they do all these things to get God's attention. And Elijah, being Elijah, says, hey, maybe, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe if you talk a little louder, you'll wake up your God and he'll be able to do it. So all day long they're doing this stuff, nothing happens. It comes to the time of sacrifice, Elijah tells some servants to go get a bunch of water, dump it all over the altar, dump it all over the wood, dump it all over, like it run down a ravine that he carved. So just soak everything. And then Elijah says, God, now. And boom, bursts into flames. Everything goes. All these people, they arrest all the... So at this point, Jezebel wants Elijah dead. This history is bad. So we revisit this history right now because we're about to introduce another character, Captain America. Elijah comes in and God speaks to him and says, go tell Ahab that I'm not giving him that land. In fact, go tell him that he and his household will die on that land also because of what they did. Now think about this. Really, we have these Ten Commandments that were supposed to be pretty much honored. And during this whole transition into kings, I believe prophets were telling them, don't get a king. A king is not going to be good. They're going to make your kids go off to war. They're going to take your money. They're going to tax you. Don't get a king. God is the only king you need. And so this warning was given constantly, constantly, constantly. And now we have another prophet, the only one that's alive, is going to intervene and remind them that I think God had these, these things, these commandments. If we were a theocracy, we would have kept them, right? Because think about what, what Jezebel and Ahab have done so far. They've coveted, right? I think that's one of the ten. He looked at that piece of land and said, I've got to have that land, Right? And then he couldn't get the land, so they basically committed murder, and they bore false witness. So we have three commandments, three of the top ten broken in this one little story, and Elijah is now sent to step in. When he gets there, 
he first tells God, I don't want to. They want to kill me. I don't want to go. If I show up, I'm done. And so he comes, he, he sits down, he, he tells Ahab the message that God had for him. And it goes about as well as you could possibly imagine. He ends up running away again. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this would be the part in a, like a play where we'd have an intermission. And you would go out to intermission, and if you have your kids with you, you're buying candy. And, and, and you start to talk and mingle in the lobby, and you're like, this, the second act or the third act has to be better, right? I mean, they have to resolve this thing because good always wins. We have, we have a, a little one that watches sad movies, and he just, Ellis just can't do it. We have to constantly remind him that it's going to end well. The ending is good. The ending is good. Because that's what we've been conditioned to do until we all saw the last Avengers, Infinity War. And we left there, and spy, oh, spy, spoiler alert. I know it's, sorry, Ben. Yeah, plug your ears. <laughs> Spider-Man dissolves into dust. No one really cares about the other ones. It was just Spider-Man that broke everyone's heart. And, and we left that movie theater going, what? Now, here's, here's the sick part of me. When I was in high school, I would talk to some buddies. I said, we should make a movie and have like all... Now, remember, I was in high school in the 90s, so this will make sense to some of you. Others will not have no idea who any of these people are. But I thought, what if we had a movie... By the way, this is before The Expendables, so I take credit for it. I said, what if we had a movie where Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme, what if they were all in it and they fought against all of the major... No one knows the bad guys' names. And they lost. Like, like, what if we just had them lose? Like, everyone threw out the whole thing? Or even better, what if we had a high school, like, drama where a kid played basketball and sometimes the whole basketball team broke out into song and knew the same dance? And, and then they made sequels of it? But what, what if they're down by two and he shoots the three-pointer with three, two, one, and just bricks it, and they lose? I think that would be awesome. Mostly because it's real life. like Because all of us are going, oh, I know this is going to end. He's going to hit the three-pointer at the end. They're going to win. Everyone's going to lift him up on the thing. They're going to sing some song and dance, and, 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 and it'll, everything will be happy again. But what if it doesn't happen like that? What if the movie ends with all of your heroes, at least half of them, dissolving into powder? What, what, if, what if the movie doesn't end with them winning the game? What, what if this, so here's where we are. All that we're stuck with, here's our satisfaction. I'm going to get him someday. And if, if I'm neighbor's wife, I'm thinking, well, everyone's going to die someday. Thanks, God. <laughs> Thanks for that promise that one day he'll die. And, and this, is, this, is, this is not a happy story for us. We, we need God to show up and do something here. Because, first of all, there's been a major injustice. And the Bible that I read talks about God stepping into the oppressed all the time. Stepping up for the oppressed all the time. Ending oppression. Lifting up those that can't lift up themselves. Being involved in the things that are going on. All of this stuff that I read throughout all of the scriptures is not present here. And it makes me a little angry. God should have not, he should have done this thing where he just struck him down. But he didn't do any of that. We just get this promise that someday, 
Someday Ahab will die the same way. Great. That, that doesn't seem like major intervention. Luckily, though, we have a second Kings. <laughs> and we find out later that Ahab does die this brutal death around the same land. And Jezebel, the same thing, it, it, was, just, it was just wrecked. I mean, it was gruesome. They talked about dogs lapping. I mean, it was, it was it, read it. It's, it. it's not a pretty picture. They, they died this gruesome, gruesome, horrible death. And then somehow I'm supposed to go, yes, God did get him. I knew it. The God of love. He got him, right? And now we feel, but we feel vindicated. We feel better. We feel like something has happened. In, in the meantime, there's a whole other lineage that is now disappeared. Because it wasn't just Ahab. It was Ahab's kids. It, it was a whole new, now a new regime is coming in because you can't be king anymore. It's tough to rule that way. And now Israel's got to go through this new transition. There's all this stuff that kind of goes along with it that we just kind of forget about because God did it, what he said. He showed up. He did what he did. Whenever I think about... Whoa. Can you fix this, Ben? Um, whenever... <laughs> Whenever I think about divine intervention, I think about Bruce Almighty. <laughs> and there's that part where he's opening up his computer and he's getting the emails and it's like, ding, 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 ding. You've got mail. Ding, ding, ding. And there's tons and tons of flood. And he, he starts answering them one at a time and he realizes that there's no way he's going to be able to do this. So he just grants everybody what they want. Everybody get what they want. And, and that's just what... So, so if you want vengeance upon these people, then God strikes down vengeance upon these people. Some people wanted to win the lottery. Some people wanted the Bruins to win the Stanley Cup, I think, in the movie. Which, I don't know who wasn't praying for the other team. That's not very fair. I just want the Giants to win a game. Actually, they won like two in a row. But I, knew, I knew John was going to be like, no, man, four-game winning streak. Uh, <laughs> I don't want much. If OU could win a national championship, that'd be okay. Not asking for a whole lot. Well, no, that's not true. Another Heisman Trophy would be nice too. Hertz could use one of those. And if Hertz getting anyway, uh, we have this thing where they just he just blasts everything and everyone gets what they want. And that, that that is how we want to treat God. We want God to grant us because look, we got it. we know we know what we need. We, if God would just listen to me, everything would be cool. My life would be so much easier if that person that spoke creation into existence, that, that, that powerful deity that knows all and his sovereignty is outside of my situations, if he would just listen to me, everything would be a lot easier to go. I mean, we'd be done with this building for sure. We'd be meeting in there, there'd be a swamp color blowing. But for some reason, we don't always listen to it the way it is. So we're out in intermission and we're talking about this isn't right. God should have done something. God, God should be doing something. And in the midst, we have this thing where I think this is where I want to focus this morning. God is going to intervene. God, God is going to show up. But I would imagine that most of the time, it's not the way you want him to or the way you're expecting him to. And that may seem easy, and it may seem like a cop-out. 
In fact, there's a, an author named Sam Harris. Don't read him unless you are the strongest Christian you could possibly be because that man can almost convince anyone to be an atheist. Sam Harris writes in one of his books that pr- there's no way, prayer is, is the biggest Christian cop-out because you say he either grants it, he says no, or not yet. So there's no way to prove it or disprove it. Because if prayer was real, and you just say, well, he said no, okay. If he says not yet, okay. So, so for us, we, we have to be in this place where we, we have to know that, that God is going to intervene, that God is going to show up, that God is going to do something. But if it doesn't look like the way we want it to go, and we pray for healing for someone, and that person doesn't get healed, are we okay with the fact that the healing might have been eternity? Like, I, I, this is, yesterday was the year anniversary of Coop's passing. I, I'm going through this journey that a lot of you know with my mentor, my pastor, my friend, who is struggling right now. I mean, it's, it's any day kind of thing. And, and we're, we're, in this, we're in the midst of this, and I don't know how many times I prayed for that healing, and the healing hasn't shown up. I don't know how many times that I prayed for the cancer to go away, but here's what I always forget. The other six times we prayed for the cancer to go away, and it did, and I want to go, but this time, where are you this time, God? I thought your number was seven. That would have been a much better miracle. But maybe the healing and the peace that we're praying for isn't the tumor going away. And even though it sounds very elementary, unless we really embrace it, because you think about it, it's like salvation. Salvation's easy, right? You surrender your life to Jesus, you repent, and you move on. It's easy. And the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. So to embrace this idea that maybe God's sovereignty really is bigger than our circumstances, and, and maybe... Maybe the way he intervenes looks nothing like the way we want him to intervene, but it doesn't mean he's not intervening. It doesn't mean he's not showing up. It doesn't mean he's not in the midst of everything. It doesn't mean that he's still not pushing through. It doesn't mean that he's still not... It's just different. And no matter where you are in your life, if you're talking about someone that is, is sick and, and just... Not, just not in a good place. Or you're talking about struggling through addiction and you're talking about praying. How many times? I've prayed so many times for God to take this away from me and he won't. One of the key factors here is that Elijah shows up. I had a professor named Dr. Samples that would always tell, he would always say, I always pray every morning that I can be the instrument that someone is praying for me to be. So he had kids that were in California. He's teaching in Oklahoma. And these kids were not going to church, not walking with Jesus, not, no acknowledgement whatsoever. And he would, always, he would pray for them to encounter someone that would be able to share the gospel in a way that they would respond to it. But he realized after praying that way that he needed to be ready to be the answer to someone else praying that about their kids in Oklahoma. So we like to pray for this, but we also have to be willing to be... So can you imagine if Elijah would have said, look, God, I know I'm the only one left, but they want me dead. I've already ran before. I love the Bible talks about, he describes it where he takes his cloak and tucks it into his belt. <laughs> he runs. They want me dead. I'm not going. There's this, there's this thing that God intervenes 
Sometimes through us being willing to intervene. Sometimes God intervenes through us. Which, let's be honest, one of the dumbest ideas ever. (laughs) We're not the most obedient people. We're we're constantly messing up and we're constantly, but that's what makes our, that's what makes it worthwhile. That's what makes it right. Because we are constantly messing up. We are constantly doing the wrong things. And so when God moves and intervenes in us to go and intervene into somebody else, and we do that thing, it makes the intervention that much more powerful. Because we're just screwed up people too. I sometimes picture it with the 12 disciples sitting in a circle and you walk in thinking you're going to be at a party and it's like, oh, an intervention. But I'm a firm believer that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. That's the end game. The opposite of addiction is community. The, The opposite of addiction is being plugged in with a group of people that surround you and pray for you, and are there for you. This is why 12-step groups work, right? You have a, what do they, they give you a sponsor. The sponsor is community. It links you in. This is, this is where we are. We are part of this thing together. Next week, we're going to dedicate a baby, and it's one of the coolest things. Actually, a toddler. It's one of the coolest things in the world to be able to say to the church, church, this young one right here, is going to need you to not only help him, but their parents, and this whole community is going to come together. That's why we do baby dedications. We give back to God, and it's our opportunity to say, hey, we're in this with you. We're in this with you. We're the village. We're the village. You can pick who's the idiot. Every village has one. Some, more than one. Um, We have to be willing to be the intervention. Elijah showed up, he intervened on God's behalf. He was the mouthpiece of God. He showed up and this all happened. Then we have the end of the story. And it's not very cool. Someday God's going to punish him. But we do find out that there is an end credit scene. Not in this book, not part of this story, where God does actually intervene. I was in youth ministry for a long time. Long enough now that I'm actually marrying kids that were in sixth grade when I started uh, at Chico. I'm doing a wedding in July for a girl that was a sixth grader coming into my youth group. So it makes me old. And that's, that's all I know about it. it. It makes me feel very old. But I also know, because I was in youth ministry so long, you don't always see the intervention right away. I will literally get emails from kids that I had in ministry 19 years ago, 18 years ago, that are now doing these amazing things, that are now, and they, man, I'm telling you, they were fringe kids at best. They, they were kids that would just talk through the entire thing. They were the kids that were there because their girlfriend invited them in, or they were looking for a girlfriend. Uh, they, they weren't there for the right reasons, quote unquote. But these kids now will send me these emails about how, how much their life has changed because of that youth group and how much, they, and it's like, you, you, you have no idea what intervention is going to look like or how long it's going to take. All that we can do is be obedient right now, and if God says intervene, we intervene. If God says go, we go. If it's time to do, we do. And there's no, there's no but what, but, but what, but, but what. We're just going to do it. And you may never, ever, 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 ever see the fruits of that. I tell Gibbons and Jess all the time, it's easy to grow a youth group. 
we, uh, look, th- there is no doubt in my mind that if I wanted to, next week we could have a, not next week, maybe, maybe, give me a couple months. We could have 100 kids here. All you have to do is buy lots of pizza and play really fun games. But the way that we kind of do things is a little bit different. We could have a Super Bowl party every year and, and pack out the thing and call it outreach, call it going out into the community and sharing the gospel. But is it really? Do they come back? And not just here, do they go get plugged in somewhere else? Because we've said over and over again, this is not the only church in town, and we're grateful for that. And if there's a place where you fit better, we will get you to that place. Our goal is kingdom building, not connected building. And sometimes the things that we do aren't super measurable. I've told you this story before, and I'll just, I'll just be real up front. I'm looking at Mark right now. I feel so guilty when I don't get my hair cut at Team Clips. I do. But I'll tell you why I don't, because I've been going to the same girl for years. And, and gradually, our conversations have started to be more about Jesus, more about what it looks like to go to church, more and more to be like that. I'm not saying that I'm so bold that I sit down in the chair and go, I've got you, because I'm afraid. She's got lots of power. <laughs> I, can't, I don't want this messed up, you know? But I sit down and we talk, and she's a pastor's kid from Wisconsin who is completely destroyed on the church from how the church treated her dad. And, and so we have these conversations where there's windows that open, and, and they're, just, they're just really good conversations. And I will continue to go. Now, will she ever come to church here? I have no idea. What will probably happen is she'll probably go to LifePoint. And you know what? Okay with that. She'll probably go, well, she'll probably go to Foursquare because Chris is way better than I am. And, but but I'm, I'm okay with that. The, my, the reason why I sit down and have her cut my hair every time and I'll wait for her is because I want her to find Jesus. I want the kingdom to be made real for her. That's it. I don't care where she ends up going to church, but the problem is that may never happen as far as I know. But I'm still going to invest. Naboth's wife never got to see the revenge. As far as she knew, God intervened with a promise that someday he'll intervene. It's kind of like, I don't know if, I don't know if, if, if guys still do this, but in high school we had this, or even like after you give a promise ring. A, a promise ring is a promise to make a promise. This was, my intervention is, I promise to intervene sometime. So for them, there, there must have been this betrayal feel. There must have been the sense that God didn't show up until years later and God makes good on his promise. So here's here's the thought to go with. In the midst of the fact that we don't think God is there, he sees and he intervenes. But it may not look like the way we want it to. It may be completely different. It may... it may be like he says in the Old Testament, if you don't give the fields a year of rest, I will take the year of rest and make your field barren for a year. You know, that's not just about fields. That's about people keeping the Sabbath too. If you refuse to rest, oh, he'll get his rest. You may be in the hospital when you're doing it, but you're going to rest. Your body is going to break down. It is going to rest. 
Well, that's not the intervention that I want, but it's still intervention. It's still God intervening on your behalf. We have to live in a way that God's intervention is truth regardless if it looks like it. God's sovereignty is bigger than our circumstances regardless if it looks like he's even listening. There is something bigger at play. And as long as we stay in this place where we are willing to be interventionists, (laughs) and when God calls, we go, and we stay faithful, God is faithful. Even when it seems like he's not there, we get to know that he is. We're going to move into connecting time, and if you're new with us, uh, connecting time is just a time for us to be able to, to tangibly reach out to God, maybe to respond. Um, I, want, I want some pretty specific things uh, to go on with you. And it, it could be about God intervening in a way that you've wanted him to and he hasn't. It could be the fact that you've been praying for so long for something and it's not shown up. Are, are, are we okay with Sam Harris's argument that sometimes God says no? God saying no is still intervention. God saying not yet is still intervention. It's still his hands in your situation. It's still his hands in your life. So maybe some of you are in that place where you've been praying for a long time for X, Y, and Z, and and, and you're not getting it. And you're kind of like, I thought if I seek, I will find. I thought if I knock, he will open. What's the deal here? Maybe some of you are in that place, and as you go to the different stations that Pastor Jess describes, you need, to, you need to be able to get into a place where you're okay with God's intervention not looking like your own intervention. Maybe some of you need to actually rely on God's intervention. Maybe you've given up on prayer. Maybe, maybe there's something going on, and you just refuse to pray about it because it doesn't work. You think that I, this doesn't do any good. Maybe some of you need to recommit to the idea that prayer does work, that God does intercede, that he does intervene in our lives on a regular basis. Here's where I am this morning. I need to get to a place during connecting time this morning where I'm okay with the fact that God intervenes in little ways too. Because I will mock the heck out of people that talk about God giving them a parking spot. But is that okay? Can God intervene in little tiny ways to make your day better? I think he probably can. Obviously he can. But even right now as I say it, I'm like, but he won't. But maybe I need to get to a place where even the, light, the smallest things, that God intervenes in the smallest ways. God intervenes with the smile of a neighbor. God intervenes. Maybe you just need to get into the idea that, does, that God does intervene. Sometimes in massive ways. By feeding 5,000. Sometimes in little ways. But he does intervene. So wherever you are this morning, I would just ask that we begin this journey together on the premise that God's intervention does not always look like how we want it to look, but it's still there. That it is still there. So that when we take the next couple Sundays and lament, at the end of the lament, just like at the end of the lament Psalms, we get to a place, no matter how much complaining. And when I'm talking about complaining, this is what I mean. There is a psalm that actually asks God to surrender the babies of the Babylonians so they can bash their heads against the rocks. It's in scripture. Do you know what the end of that psalm says? But God, you are the sovereign one. 
and we surrender our will to you. So in the midst of that, if we can just get to a place where maybe intervention happens, then even in the midst of us crying out to God, where are you? We get to come back to a place that says, God, but you are in control. You are God and I am not. And I'm going to be okay with that, even in the midst of this. So Pastor Jess is going to describe these connecting time stations, and I just ask that you would just come out with a heart that is open and ready for some kind of intervention. Back there against the wall, we have candles that you can light. And that's not because we believe there's anything magical that happens. 